0: Welcome everybody to the latest edition of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. I hope you've been enjoying the episodes thus far. I've been really enjoying doing these and reading your feedback as well to give you more of what you want. And today is one of those days that a lot of you have been asking for. So here it goes. What do you get when you take a board certified OBGYN with wickedly sharp intellect and humor and let her loose on the internet, you get my next guest. Dr. Jen Gunter has been called the internet's OBGYN, and she ain't scared of you. What does scare her though, is the massive amount of disinformation and misinformation about women's health that is readily available online, places like Instagram and TikTok, and even on your television sets, if any of you still own one of those. She challenges and debunks the pervasive and dangerous myths about women and our bodies with cold, hard facts. And she's got several New York Times bestselling books to back this all up. She wrote the Vagina Bible in 2019 about everything that she wants us to know about the lower reproductive tract, and it became an instant success. And then in 2021, she released my personal Bible, The Menopause Manifesto which lays out all of the facts about perimenopause and menopause. And it also became a New York Times instant bestseller. And now the trifecta is complete. If you have a Lord of the Rings fan in your house, maybe you're the Lord of the Rings fan, we might call her the Lady of the Vaginal Rings. With the release of her latest book, it is called Blood, the Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation. I am thrilled and honored to welcome to Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello, the woman, the legend, Dr. Jen Gunter.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. So that was great. So I hope that that landed the lady of yes. the vaginal rings. I, you know, figured you'd
0: appreciate that. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. She's gonna be up there challenging Lady Galadriel. You know, like.
0: <laughs> well, listen. Uh, a lot of people have been saying you've got to talk to Dr. Jen Gunter, and I said I know everybody. She's very, very busy. So the fact that I've been able to get you uh, at this point, I'm thrilled about because you have just uh, released your latest book. It is another Bible to hold onto from here until the end of time. Um, It is called Blood. And I've got to start with the title because, I mean, listen, it's about as straightforward as it gets. And I'm always curious to know from authors, were there any other titles in the running for this latest book?
1: Yeah, no. I knew I wanted to have the word blood out there and be like graphic about it uh, to get to grab people, but also as part of like the myth busting because I'm tired of euphemisms, you know, just like the word vagina, menopause, blood. You know, I think that it just catches you in a way that makes you stop and think. And there's nothing shameful, there's nothing awful about it. And we need to just get that out up front. So yeah, I think think my publishers have like a kind of a bit of a, oh, are they, you know, are they gonna wanna put your book on the shelf? And I'm like, yeah, they will. (laughs) (laughs) Mission accomplished for sure. Now you've said
0: many, many times on many platforms, it shouldn't be an act of feminism to know about your body. And you've also said myths about women's bodies perpetuate when you don't have information.
1: But I'm curious to know, who did you write this book for primarily? Yeah, so this book, I think, is really written for everybody. I would say, I mean, I think whether you menstruate or not, some of you should know about. But I the amount of, you know, when you write about menopause, there's a little bit of menstrual cycle information in there, but not too much. And in the vagina Bible, there's a little bit and not too much. And I also kind of remembered what my editor had said about the vagina bible. Like, I actually included some information in there about the menstrual cycle because she, you know, I said, oh, she didn't understand some of the references. And I sort of sort of thought, huh, I wonder You know, what is kind of the general knowledge there? And so I just, you know, if you have this physiology, you know, you deserve to know more about it and you need to deserve to know when it's not functioning how you want it. And you also deserve to know, you know, how to sort out good information from bad. So, you know, I think it's for everybody. And like I said, people who don't menstruate, they should know about it too, because whether you reproduce or not, you've benefited from the menstrual cycle. Absolutely.
0: Okay, we're going to dive in. You say it's not about blood, not about periods.
1: It's about patriarchy. What does that mean? Yeah, this collective silence and shame and disinformation and lack of research, all of this, you know, there's nothing dirty about menstrual blood, it's just blood. And, you know, there's nothing shameful about menstruating. Like it's, you know, you could have picked a bloody nose. I mean, it's not different physiologically. I mean, it's obviously different, but do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's a fluid coming out of a body and, you know, we all urinate and somehow we're not all dirty and shameful because of that. So it's really about how to like other half the population and make them oppressed and make them feel like their very physiology is, is, you know, contaminated.
0: You start at the very beginning in this book, um, writing that less than 2% of mammals menstruate. So explain to the audience, why do we menstruate? And, and clearly, there's got to be some kind of evolutionary benefit that menstruating has given us. So why us? <laughs>
1: yeah so it's really fascinating most animals have estrus and i know that you know you know about horses and horses have an estrus cycle they all breed at a certain you know there's a breeding time right so they're much more governed by the seasons by the environment and you know humans because of our big brains and our mobility we're you know we we haven't been restricted to a, a part of the world and and so the belief is that you know for humans that you know that menstruation allows us to have these or the menstrual cycle and menstruation sort of the offshoot of not getting pregnant that the thick lining that we develop in the uterus that's kind of the the thing that accepts the embryo And that is part of resource curation. So you have this super thick, invasive human placenta that's trying to go so deep in the uterus because it wants to get all these nutrients and oxygen to develop this big fetal brain and have all this, you know, have everything that we are. And the problem is is you need something that can counteract that big aggressive placenta. So we have all this thick endometrium that's called decidua. That's basically there like a catcher's mitt in a sense, to sort of, or a backstop to kind of protect the placenta from going all the way through. And there's also fascinating research that tells us that this might also be part of a quality sensor. So we've probably all heard that 70% or so of human conceptions, you know, end in miscarriage, right? It's so so common. And part of that is we do have a high rate of chromosomal abnormalities. And the endometrium can sense that. It can sense an abnormal embryo, you know, a significantly abnormal one and, you know, and not allow the pregnancy to progress. Because if you think about resource curation, it is incredibly labor intensive to have a human. So not only do you have this nine months where you're basically expending the same amount of energy as you would like doing the Tour de France or, you know, running a marathon a day, like it's at the limit of human metabolic ability having a pregnancy and breastfeeding. So you're not only gonna do that, but then you have to run the gamut of having a having childbirth, which, you know, historically has had mortality. Then infant, mor- your, your infant has to survive mortality, you have to breastfeed it, demanding even more calories than being pregnant. So you think about the toll it takes on the body. The body's very, you know, the evolution doesn't want to take a toll for something that isn't going to work out, right? That's so much energy for a human. And so we expend so much energy doing that. And again, you know, when you have a if you're a horse, you the baby comes out, it can, can walk. Like, you know, almost immediately it can <laughs> yeah. do stuff, right? It, it's like, and human babies are like blobs. They, you know, <laughs> they, they need so much help from us, which is part of their biologic toll on us. So the belief is it's, you know, it's the part of the machinery that, that, that helps us produce these offspring that have these big brains that are able to walk and do all these things, but also part of the resource curation for that. It's fascinating to read that I had like asterisks
0: all over my book with like decidualized endometrium and I said I'm gonna make a t-shirt that's my superpower
1: yeah exactly that's what I want (laughs) you know I mean more people should know about the decidua. I mean it's just because that's the lining that comes out so you know I think that if people knew more about it it would obviously demystify it and it's cool like it's kind of cool It's really cool. Really cool. Okay, here's the first, uh, Dr. Gunter,
0: of many of what I'm going to call TikTok alerts. (laughs) And so... You dispel so many myths throughout this book, just simply by laying out the facts, as I said, off the top. And a lot of these are perpetuated on social media. They uh, they take on a mythology of their own. It's one of the reasons why so many people adore you is because you just kind of call this BS out straight away. And there's a lot of this, like the proliferation of what you call menstruation influencers that are specifically in this field and like right up our uteruses, and we don't like it, okay? So I'm going to call this the TikTok alert. So I'm going to throw a few of these at you periodically throughout our discussion, and if you can lay these out. So true or false, there are magical healing powers in menstrual blood, so much so that you can make a face mask out of it and have it be effective.
1: Yeah, I know, right? That was a TikTok a while back where people were putting menstrual blood on their face for acne and wrinkles. And, you know, like many of these things, there's, you know, a kernel of truth that's been distorted. That's why it sounds okay to us. You know, it sounds plausible. So yeah, there's stem cells in endometrium, but you can't just take a stem cell from something and slap it on you and think it's going to regenerate you. Like that's not how it works. You know, like in the lab, when we, you know, coax stem cells into something else, it's, intricate and in your body has all this intricate machinery to coax stem cells. So so the stem cells aren't doing anything. And menstrual blood's just blood. So uh, it's also got endometrium in it, so the lining of the uterus. But I mean... Would you put blood from drawing your blood on your face? I mean, some people do. That's what the vampire facial well, is. That, yeah, that's true. Again, um, so, so yeah, but um, it's yeah, it's just not something that you know. Probably there probably isn't any harm to it. Although, if you had open acne sores, it's probably not a good idea to do that. Mm. You know, but because uh, simply you know you don't want to put you know any fluids on that. But apart from that, um, yeah, it's just. You know, I'm all for people who want to do it as part of some kind of like demonstration at the Capitol because of, you know, misogyny, especially like in, you know, places where, um, you know, act, you know reproductive rights are being curtailed. So I'm all about that. If you want to do that to like, you know, be in some politician's face, go for it. Um, but to say that it's got magical healing powers, no.
0: True or false. The color of your menstrual blood can indicate certain things about your health.
1: Yeah, that's a really popular one. Uh, no, not at all. The color of your menstrual blood reflects how much is there, right? So if there's a tiny little drop mixed in with your mucus, it's just going to look pinkish. Um, and if it's really dark, that means it's oxidized. So it's just been changed by exposure to oxygen because of the iron in it. So, um, so yeah, the the color doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's it's just just color. It doesn't it doesn't have a a deeper meaning. You write about this a little bit,
0: but I wanted to ask you about it in terms of an immune system. And I'm curious to know, does our vagina or our uterus or our reproductive system, does it have its own unique immune system like you would have, for example, a gut microbiome, you know, for example, or like, is there such a thing as like a vaginal microbiome? And if so, are they any at, like at all connected to one another? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, so you, we do. We have a vaginal microbiome, and you have an endometrial microbiome in the uterus, um, and there's a, a microbiome in the bladder as well. And this is really at our infancy of understanding, and I, I I always, you know, patriarchy is a big part of everything, but this is also really complex, and and we didn't understand very much about the microbiome, really until the last sort of 10 years or so, because we didn't have the technology to identify all the different kinds of bacteria. So for example, when I was in medical school, it was all done, you had to culture the bacteria in the lab, but a lot of the bacteria that's in the vagina can't grow in the lab, it can only grow in the vagina. So you need like DNA technology to identify it, but that that didn't exist when I was a medical student, right? So when I was a medical student, we all thought it was about lactobacillus acidophilus, And now we know that has very little to do with it. Um, So that's a good example of how science changes once you get new technology. So there is a very complex microbiome um, on your skin, in your vagina, in the lining of the uterus. And that's all part of defense systems. It's all part of keeping that body part working how it's supposed to you know the microbiome in your gut does very specific things um, you know with it helps with um, met, you know it can even help take apart certain compounds that you digest and some then maybe get absorbed and some don't I mean it's all different kinds of fascinating cool stuff that happen so yes we do have um, a, an active microbiome uh, in the lining of the uterus as well as in the vagina and we know less about what's going on in the uterus and a bit more about what's going on the vagina, just because it's easier to sample, right? But yeah, it's a fascinating field. And I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years, everything we think we know now is actually incorrect, because I think we're now just getting the technology to be actually be able to actually look at some of these questions. Okay. So like, for
0: example, my esthetician once said to me, oh my gosh, if you're getting yeast infections, just like eat yogurt. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that would be based on not scientific information. So, um, <laughs> the, the lactobacilli that's in yogurt is not the kind that's supposed to be in your vagina and yogurt's great. Look, I mean, if fermented products are very good for, you know, your digestive tract, prayer, uh, dairy is a great source of protein. It's got calcium for you. I'm not, it's great. I have, I have a yogurt or a skier almost every single day. Cause I think they're great, very nutritionally complete Foods that fill me up, but but they're not going to help your vagina.
0: Okay. I love it. Okay.
1: Does menstrual blood smell? Like, can someone tell if you're menstruating? Well, I certainly can't. If someone's in the room, I don't know they're on their period until they take their pants off. And I'm, you know, and even if they're sitting on the table, bleeding onto the pad, you know, because we put pads on the table, because we know that lots of people come to us, they're going to be having bleeding. So I don't know, most people are menstruating until they either tell me or they put their legs up in stirrups. So so the idea that there's a smell, a polluting smell that we can all smell that's different from the smell of blood, right, is not correct. So blood does have a little bit of a smell to it. If you cut your if you have a bleeding nose, you can smell a little bit of that. So like metallic Yeah. And so it's very fascinating. I talk about the chemicals that do that, but no, I mean, there's no specific polluting odor. Certainly if somebody has a problem with recurrent bacterial vaginosis, they may notice that odor from bacterial vaginosis towards the end of their menstrual cycle, because that's when it starts to to rise, but that's not a menstrual odor. That's, you know, from a, a different medical condition. Okay. So true or false,
0: women only produce
1: estrogen in our ovaries, no, uh, we produce all you know all different kinds of really um, interesting uh, hormones. You know, estrogen is one of the main ones, but you know we make we make testosterone as well. We make it in smaller amounts, um, and a lot of our testosterone also comes from our adrenal glands. So that's important to point out. Whereas the estrogen. The primary source is the follicles and the ovaries. But yeah, it's a really fascinating, you know, there's two compartments in each follicle, the granulosa and the theca cells, and they're both involved. So the precursor hormones are made in one, then that's shuttled to the other part, which makes them the estrogen. And it's, it's a really fascinating, very complex process.
0: Terminology and names and naming mean a lot to you, Um, often connected with the patriarchy as well in super misogynist terms, uh, in terms of their history. But you say in the book that you would rename estrogen and testosterone. So I want to know why, and then what would you name them instead?
1: Well, you know, I mean, estrogen is like, you know, from estrus, which is like a gadfly, like a sexual gadfly. And it's just like, really really like do we have to have that and of course you know testosterone is from the testes but we know that that testosterone also comes from the ovaries right so a lot of these things were named either because that was where it was first isolated so testosterone from the testicles um and or because of pejorative names for women there's never any pejorative names for men right for things that come from men so you know i'm all for naming things that it's more about their bio their biological purpose. And, you know, this idea that testosterone is the man's hormone has, you know, really also I think affected a lot of sort of toxic beliefs about the body in a lot of different ways as well. So it would, it would be nice to just be able to, you know, have things renamed for their function. I mean, a lot of these things were named when we knew like nothing, right? Like, you know, prostaglandins, the important hormone and hormones that are made for pain control, certainly very involved in menstruation. Um, you know, they thought it was from a prostate. So, you know, it's obviously not. So I, I mean, I think, I think it's something to think about, but obviously it would take a lot to um to rename that. But I'm hopeful. I mean, we used to call the vaginal changes of menopause atrophy, which sounds awful. Oh and God. now we and now we're able to call it the genito urinary syndrome of menopause. And you know what? It took about ten years and and every you know, it's like going from Fahrenheit to Celsius. It's a bit difficult at the beginning, and then you get it. And then it's there. It's true. And then it's there. (laughs) Okay. Another true or false for you.
0: Natural hormones are safer for women to use in hormone replacement therapy than synthetic ones. This
1: one's loaded. Yeah. So there isn't the only natural hormone you can take in menopausal hormone therapy would be from Premarin. From made from horse's urine. Um, because a natural compound means that it's found in nature unchanged. So we don't give people ground up human ovaries for menopause. So if you want a natural hormone, that's what you want. You want ground up ovaries. And that's kind of gross, isn't it? So, um, and synthetic just means made in a lab. It, you know, the, it doesn't mean anything. And so all of the hormones, whether they're in birth control pills or menopausal hormone therapy, with the exception of Premarin, are all made the same way. They're all made in a multi-step process called the marker degradation, where a compound found, um, it used to be in both yams and soybeans, but now they just use soybeans. I think it's probably a cheaper, easier crop. Where that chemical, which is not a hormone, is exposed to all kinds of nasty sounding chemicals and bonds are broken down and rebuilt. And then you can make progesterone or you can make a progestin, the kind of hormone that's in the pill. It's all made from that. Um, And uh, so that's the process called semi-synthesis. The other way you can use the term is synthetic to be like a new or a novel compound. Well, then I guess no one else should be on a cell phone and we should all just be using rotary phones, right? Like why do we want new things? So the loaded um, terminology
0: of something like bio-identical, body-identical, what does that mean in the context of this dichotomy a lot of people like to make between something that is natural versus something that is synthetic?
1: Yeah, so it's propaganda. So bioidentical is really a meaningless term medically. It doesn't really mean anything. And same with body identical. Because also the hormones that are made in the lab, if I want to give you estradiol made in a lab, it can never be truly identical to what the estrogen made by your body is. There's always a little bit of a difference. Now, it's not like a meaningful difference, but there actually is a little bit of a difference at a cellular level. Now, your body doesn't care. but So they're not truly identical. So there's that issue. but. I can take estrogen from your body and give you cancer with it if I got enough of it. So, it's this implication that it is safer and it's not or that it's better. And if you truly if you use the term bioidentical how all these marketers use it, every pharmaceutical product I'm giving you is can be bioidentical. So, why wouldn't you want the one made by a pharmaceutical company where I know how much it is I'm giving you as opposed to some compounded stuff I have no idea what's in it. I always tell people compounded hormones is like buying gasoline from some guy on the side of the road. I guess you hope he made it right. I'm going to leave
0: that right there.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's a great analogy.
0: (laughs) Want to buy some gas? That's going to be my new new line.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, little girl, want to buy some gas? (laughs) All right. Well, um,
0: in discussing perimenopause and menopause in your book, the phrasing balancing hormones comes up a lot. So my next question to you is, can you quote unquote balance hormones? And then the second follow-up there would be, what does hormonal imbalance
1: and estrogen dominance mean? Yeah. So hormonal balancing or imbalance is at best a really bad analogy. Um, It doesn't apply. There's no balance for your reproductive hormones. They're changing every single day of your cycle. So they're rising, they're falling. It's kind of more like a symphony, everything working together. And just like at some parts of the movement, you know, the horns are louder and other parts, the clarinets are louder. So that's really the better analogy. Um, So it's always hard to explain something that isn't really a thing because it's not. Yeah, estrogen dominance is some kind of naturopathic term that doesn't have any, um, uh, any grounding in science that I'm aware of. It's not a medical term. If you go into a medical dictionary, you'll not see the word estrogen dominance. And so problems is words like that that don't have a medical meaning then get abused to use all kinds of things. Um, We see estrogen dominance used mostly to sell at-home tests to check your um, estrogen metabolites. It's a total unnecessary adventure that doesn't do anything for your health. And so, so, yeah, it doesn't really have a meaning. So I would tell people that should be a really big red flag. If you're seeing a provider who's using the words estrogen dominance or telling you you need to do something to get your hormones back in balance, you should probably get up and walk out the door and get another opinion.
0: So, connected to that, is there such a thing as dirty estrogen?
1: Yeah, no, there isn't. Again, that comes back to people making stuff up. This idea that, you know, when you metabolize things in your body, they get converted in a often in multi-step processes to other hormones or other compounds that can be excreted. I have the example that maybe most people are familiar with is alcohol. We drink alcohol, the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase breaks it down, and the, one of the steps along the way is a compound called acetaldehyde, which is quite toxic to humans. And that's actually, you know, is one of the things that can make you sick. Uh, And so, but then that is broken down further into water, into, you know, carbon and you you get rid of, then you pee the stuff out and and it's gone. So so the idea people try to scare you that if you have a bad metabolic pathway with estrogen, that somehow those toxic metabolites are accumulating, but that's just not, grounded in, in what we know. Um, there isn't any data to tell us that, that that's a clinical thing that we need to worry about. Certainly there are many bench researchers who are looking at estrogen metabolism as risk factors for tumors. And what does that mean? And, you know, could they come up with, you know, is, but it's not something that has any clinical utility for, for people.
0: Um, another
1: TikTok alert,
0: true or false? (laughs) We can make follicles into adulthood.
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's really an awful predatory one because that's linked to accounts that are trying to, ta- you know, that are targeting, you know, women usually with infertility and age related infertility, right? That, that, oh, you don't have to worry about, you know, your fertility starting to decline in your late thirties. Uh, you can just follow my diet, or you can just take my supplements Um, and I'll teach you how you can make new follicles. And there is no science that supports it. There was a paper a few years ago that questioned maybe if whether it was possibility and no other researchers have really been able to reproduce those findings. So, we believe that we make all of our follicles uh, until um, about 20 weeks in in gestation, so when we're a fetus, and then that's it. And then after that, there's kind of this slow march of follicles. And that's the same for really all mammals, with the exception of the naked mole rat, which is where some of <laughs> which are like fascinating, bizarre creatures. Apparently they don't ever get cancer. So, and I'm just going to tell everybody to go and look up the Wikipedia page for the naked mole rat after this, and you will be both horrified and you won't be able to look away because they're just like, you know... Apparently there's and I'm not a naked mole rat expert but there's apparently one <laughs> one naked mole rat's job is to get as big as possible and to plug the entry to the warren and like all kinds of things and they you know they um they have a completely different social structure than we have they're different animals at different environments right so so you know you can't so the naked mole rats may be able to do that but we're not naked mole rats <laughs> uh, thank god yeah, right. Uh, but thanks. really go go look them up. It's you'll just read it and you'll just be like, whoa, biology man.
0: <laughs> are they blind? Why do I have this concept that they're blind? I believe they
1: are. I think so. And again, you know, I, anybody out there listening who's like a naked mole rat researcher, I'm really sorry if I've butchered your research. <laughs> You are going to have a lot of people sliding
0: into your DMs. Yeah, Doctor. Wait Gunter. a minute, let me tell you about that. <laughs> um, I want to take a little bit of time right now to focus on something that I think so many people are talking about. Certainly, I am because I am in my perimenopausal era, Doctor Gunter, and I know a lot of people who follow me are, and uh, a lot of people who are eating up your book and, and for example, the Menopause Manifesto. I mean, I'm just giving it out like candy to, to oh. all my friends right now because we're in it. And some of us are just starting and some are really like in the ditch with it. Mm-hmm. So this podcast is called Aging Powerfully. And so a lot of people, you know, they're trying to find their footing when they've had a whole life of solid footing. And now they're in this kind of hormonal chaos and this haze. And I think this is where you get really, I'll I'll call myself out first, Desperate and hold on to almost any information that comes your way, almost like gospel, because you're just looking for any kind of help and relief in the vacuum of care. Because we know, at least in this country, I know you're Canadian, but you're in the States, but it's not that different. There's just such a dearth of information and specialists that you can talk to, and your family doctor sometimes can help, but more often than not can't because they haven't received adequate education as well. So I personally have had to unlearn so much stuff with much guidance from your books. And I'm now in the process of relearning. So I'm eating a bunch of humble pie because I probably spewed half of the things that you've already just debunked for us to this point. And I've like screamed it from the mountaintops like it's fact. And um, And I have to really understand, like don't beat yourself up, Melissa. There's a reason why people were spouting that, right? And so all of that to say, You write in the book that 65% of women feel unprepared for menopause, and you do discuss menopause in the book. Why is this persisting, the misinformation and the disinformation? We're in the middle of of the... No, we're not the middle. We're at the beginning of 2024. We've got more access to information at our fingertips than we have had in the history of
1: humanity. Why is this problem persisting? I think it's really multifactorial. So I think, you know, part of it is coming into it with um, never having heard about it really collectively discussed, right? Like when you get pregnant, you've heard people, you've, you've heard someone talk about morning sickness. You've also heard people who had easy pregnancies. You kind of heard like the whole gamut of the pregnancy experience, you know, people who had four-hour labors, you know, people who had six-day labors. You sort of have that kind of general awareness that there's this range of experiences, right? Um, and then that, you know, so... So there's that. So people, there's this silence. So people don't have an appreciation for the range of experiences. And either if they have some friends they talk to, maybe they're all in one small subset, so they don't have that. I think also, you know, it's... People don't have the they they have don't have good places to go to get information, and that's where predators come in, and they take up the slack, and they're promising easy answers when there aren't any. Uh, I mean, there's an easy answer for hot flashes, um, and there's an easy answer for vaginal dryness, but many of the other things don't have easy answers. They have things that can sometimes help, and we're all the same. Look, I want someone to promise me a supplement that's going to fix something and not something that, oh, well, there's an 18% chance it'll help, right? So medicine is stuck with being factual and talking about, you know, the reality and alternative medicine is promising whatever you want to make the sale. So I think we have that difference too. And the inability to talk about it's very isolating. But I also think when women are going through menopause, it's also this time for many when it's just like one more thing on their plate. Like women do the bulk of the emotional labor at work and in households, if they're in a heterosexual household. And there was even a study showing that when there's a male partner who helps with childcare, he helps with the fun stuff. So he gets to take the kid outside to play in the snow, and he gets to build Legos. And the dirty diapers and the laundry are more likely to be done by the woman so when you start to think about like that buildup of that lifetime it's almost like a pressure like if you think about what happens before an earthquake right like that pressure and that pressure building up and then you get to this point where you're not feeling well and you're still balancing all of that stuff and you know maybe you haven't had the opportunity to do the self-care because You've been doing all that. You may been working full-time as well as looking after kids or just working two jobs to survive. And so you haven't had that foundation of being able to have done weight-bearing exercises your whole life. You haven't had that foundation of being able to eat healthy. You haven't had all of these things. So, so it's kind of like a perfect storm. You know, There's predators, there's lack of information, there's the societal expectations on women. And then finally, there's the fact that you're made to feel like you're aging out right like if i if i said you know it says if you're having to go through something difficult in your life and i can tell you that hey you're you're but you're great and you're lovely and you're wonderful and then you're going through that exact same thing and i'm like yeah you're old and ugly you're probably going to feel worse about your symptoms right like like that would be normal. It doesn't mean it's in your head. It means that when you're treated poorly, it has an effect. So I think it's this awful nexus. And for me, the way out of it is correct information, because then you know what's happening to your body. You can advocate at the doctor's office. You can separate the the crap from the good stuff, and then you can move forward. You can ask the questions you need to ask. You can you can you know hopefully learn to um, be a you know be a sort of a uh, your own sort of menopause concierge, if you will. What is the number one
0: enduring menopause myth that pisses you off the most?
1: Um, I would say that it's it's really an awful one, and I still hear some doctors say it. The idea that women were meant to die before menopause. Yeah, it's an old thinking that was came from a pharmaceutical, from a doctor who was paid by pharma. Um, in the 1960s, and this idea that that basically we only have menopause because women are living longer now that they can experience it. But no one says that about men. No one ever says, well, we have erectile dysfunction now that men are living long enough to experience it. Because it's not like all women dropped dead at 48 and all the men kept on living. Like, <laughs> what are you even talking about? Right? And you're erasing every grandmother and great-grandmother you know, since the dawn of time with that. Um, so it's pretty it's pretty offensive. And also, if you look at uh, data from the Centers for Disease Control in the States and you look at life expectancy in 1900, so before there were any estrogen products available, right? So people had menopause, straight up, no help. Women lived longer than men. So you could say that being a man is a disability because you don't have menopause. <laughs> I mean, if you want to make stuff up, you could say that I don't want to make stuff up. But you know what I mean? So I find that myth really problematic. And there's a lot, the, a lot of the sort of myths about menopause are very patriarchal. And it's really sad to see women, especially women physicians, promoting that, that kind of mythology. Um, and I would say the second one is that you can absolutely do weight bearing exercises, you can get strong. And those are things that will help you throughout you know, your whole life.
0: Um, this is a TikTok alert that you've kind of already alluded to, but let's just put it to bed once and for all. Can supplements help with peri or perimenopausal or
1: menopausal symptoms? So I always tell people that supplements are untested, unregulated pharmaceuticals. So can untested, unregulated pharmaceuticals help with your menopause transition? That phrases it a different way, doesn't it? Makes you think differently. Um, so I always say to people, well, what symptom are you trying to help with, and you know, if it's just feel better, well, there's no supplement thing help. Like that's, you know, you need an outcome. Like, do you want reduce hot flashes? Do you want sleep better? The, the studies with the supplements are all either low quality or non-existent. So last year, the Menopause Society reviewed all of the supplements for hot flashes. And not one of them, not one, reached the level that they would recommend. So, you know, if you live in Canada, you might need some vitamin D. Um, so that would be a supplement. If you're a vegan or vegetarian, you might need some vitamin B twelve because you might not be getting it from your meat. Um, but apart from that, you know, supplements are to supplement your diet. And I always tell people, you know, if you have the money to spend on a supplement like that's $49.99 a month, because a lot of them are or more, maybe spend some of that money meeting with a registered dietitian and see, you know, what you could do um, you know, for, to optimize your diet from that standpoint. But yeah, there's all of these supplements, you know, they make all these kinds of claims. But at the end of the day, there isn't one I would take. Okay.
0: Um, There's a lot of changes with aging and menopause that are really, really difficult for some women. Are there any upsides to menopause?
1: Yeah. Not having a period is really awesome. (laughs) It's really awesome. I tell you, like, it's so awesome to travel and to never be like, I got to pack 30 tampons, right? (laughs) Never having to change a tampon or a pad in an airplane bath, you know, bathroom. Oh my god, amazing! Um, a lot of women describe a certain clarity when they kind of come through menopause, and I don't know if it's just because you're at the point now where you just don't care what anybody says, or if it's truly the fact that you know, during menopause, there's a lot of brain remodeling. And, you know, one of the theories is you're getting rid of all these these pathways for reproduction that you just don't need anymore. Because your brain, every night when you sleep, your brain is pruning pathways and getting rid of things, right? It's, all, it's like they're cleaning up all the time. And so there's some theories that some of that You know, might be related to the brain fog, kind of the rewiring, if you will, uh, that some people have. And that afterwards, a lot of women really do describe a clarity. And again, I don't know if it's because they just have been around long enough that they just don't care because, you know, menopause coincides with a certain age in your life as well. Um, but yeah, I think that uh there's a lot of benefit. It's it's it, a lot of people have suffered greatly with the way their hormones change, cycle to cycle. There's none of that. Um, so yeah, it's um I, I'm here to tell you you can absolutely thrive in menopause. You can have great sex in menopause, you can meet the love of your life in menopause. I was menopausal when I met the love of my life. So there you go.
0: Oh, that is so hopeful. We're going to leave that right there. (laughs) Um, I mean, everybody loves Dr. Jen Gunter, but one of my favorite Dr. Jen Gunters is pissed off, Dr. (laughs) Jen Gunter. (laughs) And then in the section of your book entitled History and Safety of Menstrual Products, I mean, if I'm reading through the caps, it's do not call them
1: feminine hygiene products. So what do we call them instead and why not? Menstrual products. They're for menstruation. It's nothing to do with being feminine. It's nothing to do with your feminine power. It's nothing to do with, um, you know, with hygiene. You're not unhygienic. You're. It's just, you know, menstrual products. Can we just call them what they are? Let's get that word out there. Let's get more people saying the word menstruation. Let's see all the young children walking through, you know, shoppers and you know, Safeway with their parents, seeing the word menstruation and not being like. <gasps>
0: Freaking out. Let's normalize that.
1: Precisely. Precisely.
0: Um, You have a chapter called Bleeding Bingo, which is pretty (laughs) funny. (laughs) And it lays out when to see your doctor
1: about your period. Can you list a few of these? Yeah. So um, if you're soaking, if your period is soaking through your menstrual products onto your clothes, if you're bleeding and your clots are bigger than the size of a quarter, if you're bleeding for longer than seven days if you're having periods more than closer than kind of 21 days apart, or you're bleeding between periods, or if your periods are kind of more than 34 or 35 days apart, and you should probably talk with your doctor, or if you're skipped more than two periods, those are all reasons to talk to your doctor. Um, you know, so many young women especially are iron deficient from heavier periods and there's treatment for that. There's medication um, and sometimes it can be a sign of a bleeding disorder. So, you know, you want to have the appropriate investigation for that. Uh, and there's also no reason to suffer. I mean, it sucks to have heavy periods. It sucks to be like, mm, I, don't, I can't really do anything today because I don't want to like leak all over the place, even with, you know, wearing a tampon and a pad, like better living through chemistry.
0: Yeah. Okay, this is a question for everybody who's listening to think about um, what costs the U.S. economy $2 billion a year in missed work. The answer is painful periods. So Dr. Gunter, what percentage of women does this actually affect? And, And speaking to bosses out there, employers, what should they be doing to accommodate these women?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so there's obviously a spectrum for painful periods and, you know, there's, uh, there's people who have, you know, definitely painful periods and there's people who it extends for even longer and longer, and they may even have, have endometriosis or a different condition, but, you know, painful periods are very, very, very common. It's actually more, more the experience it's, you know, the exception is to have no pain. Um, now it shouldn't be pain that interferes with your, activities of daily living um, or pain that with an ibuprofen or naproxen, you can take that and you're fine, then that would be in the normal spectrum. But yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, there's a lot of pain. And I think we need to have an acceptance of that and some type of accommodation. I don't know what the answer is. I'm not a workplace expert. Um, And I'm also of the belief that, you know, no matter what your medical condition is or medical issue that you should you know, your workplace should be accommodating. But when half the population is set up to have a problem that the other half of the population is never going to have, then it seems to me that there needs to be some kind of way to kind of take that into account. Um, you know, otherwise, we all stop reproducing and then you know we're going to be in the book children of men and that didn't like turn out too well <laughs> uh, right um so so um since we don't want to live in a dystopian hellscape uh you know so i think yeah there needs to be some kind of accommodation and i also think that this one thing that covid has taught us is that people who do many 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 types of jobs can be very productive working in the home environment and for a lot of people who have a lot of cramps or other types of things they can kind of manage quite easily around their own house. It's when you have to like get out and go out into the world that it gets to be harder. So, you know, what kind of accommodations can we have for that? But also understanding people should get medical treatment if they're, you know, if you're missing school or work because of pain, then that's the time to also talk with a doctor. You end the book discussing
0: contraception and abortion. Um, You know, I'm curious why you did that, but also... If you can get into the benefits of, of contraception health-wise, and also, you know, there are myths, uh, people out there talking a lot about or against, not just, you know, there's the hormone therapy, the, the people who are against hormone therapy, but there's also this movement out there I've been sensing, perhaps you have better take on this, against contraception and the pill. So
1: let's dive into that just a little yeah. bit. So I included that so I you know, I, I you can't really include a section, you can't really talk about medical conditions that affect the reproductive tract or you know, the menstrual cycle and not talk about contraception because those are a lot of the therapies we use, right? And also the ability to control reproduction has been a massive thing for for women. Uh, you know, now not everybody's partnered in a situation where they're at risk of getting pregnant and that's great, then you don't have those concerns. But, you know, if you look at, you know, the pill is responsible for massive economic gains for women and the ability to, to not have five, six children, you know, if that's what you don't want, right? If you want that, then that's great. But the ability to space pregnancies, the ability to, to you know, to control what happens to your body, the ability to have sex for pleasure, right? That, that all of those things are things that women deserve and without being un- encumbered with, you know, a child that they don't want to have um, or don't want to have at that time. So I had to include it because it was part of the medical therapies for, you know, for heavy bleeding, for endometriosis, for polycystic ovarian syndrome, but also because of all these myths and lies on social media. Um, it's really become a co- more than a cottage industry. Certainly a lot of naturopaths stoke this they sell period repair products to repair from your men, from taking the pill which is like a scam like there's no data to support that at all and you know if the pill were causing this great harm to people why are we only noticing it now when hormone doses were massively higher you know 30 years ago like like that should have been when we saw it and of course we did see blood clots we did see issues with those very high doses so we saw something so it's really internalized misogyny and patriarchy that that is this whole idea that the pill is controlling you and you're only, you know, they want you to be pure, clean, and natural. They want you to be unencumbered with hormones. They, you know, they want you re- to return to that natural, you know, state. And it's so offensive on so many levels. Like There are a lot of women who really suffer with menstrual cramps or really suffer with polycystic ovarian syndrome or endometriosis or menstrual diarrhea or menstrual migraines. So you're saying that if they just ate your diet and took your supplements that are untested, they'd be better? Like, screw off, I'm sorry. Like that's it's, it's offensive, that's what you're saying. And again, it's purity culture. This idea that, that you should be cleansed from modern medicine, so what? So you're ready for a man? Like, like that's what that really is. You know, and this idea that, you know, the one of the things that's been going around is the idea that if you're on the pill, it's gonna make you pick the wrong partner. I haven't heard that one. I mean, it's so awful. I hate to talk about it because then, you know, people have heard about it. But this whole idea that really, so you think women are just like mindless creatures controlled by a hormone? Like that, that, that you're not able, you have no like conscious decision making, you know, um, and maybe just, maybe when you go on the pill, when you're 20, what you want in a partner at age 20 might, might be different than what you wanted a partner at age 35, especially if you've been with that partner for 35 years or 25 years or whatever, or 15 years, I can't do the math. And, um, he's been doing all the fun stuff with the kids and you've been cleaning all the diapers. Do you think (laughs) that might have anything to do with, you know, with, you know, all of a sudden maybe realizing that this isn't the right person for you? So, you know, a lot of this, people talk about, oh, well, the pill affects your pheromones. We don't have pheromones. There's no proof we have pheromones. We don't have the organ in our nose to detect pheromones. Um, And it reduces women to cattle, like, like, we're supposed to be in some kind of breeding season. Like I just, I find it very reductive. And, you know, it's true that many medications and their effect on the brain is unstudied or understudied. You know what else is understudied? The effect of pregnancy on the brain, the effect of postpartum depression on the brain, the effect of being denied an abortion on the brain, Um, the effect of having chronic pelvic pain on the brain or having painful periods on the brain. So, you know, you have to you have to look at everything in context. I mean, everything changes your brain. Every experience changes your brain, um, and so. But this idea that that you know, women are basically going to choose beta males when they're on the birth control pill, and then when they go off the pill, they're going to realize they want like an alpha male. I mean, I'm you know that's the best summary that I can come up with, and it's just it's just awful.
0: I I have heard people who seem to be very prominent in the space say that taking oral contraceptives shrinks the size of your clitoris?
1: Yeah, I don't think there's really any good data for that. Um, I think that uh, a lot of the, uh, I think I, the person that I think heard say that, I believe that um, Christiane Northrup was her mentor, anti-Semitic, anti-vaccine Christiane Northrup. So, you know, I, um, I, I always Googled the name of any so-called expert and see if they're associated with Christiane Northrup, who is considered one of the top agents of disinformation during COVID, uh, who, you know, wrote the book, uh, what of the wisdom of menopause and another book and um, yeah, in in one of her first books. So this would have been out there. She wondered if circumcised men were more likely to commit rape. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So association with Christiane Northrup for me is like a hard stop for, um, for, you know, and other people might feel differently about that, but, um, but yeah, there's, there's no good data to, to back that up. And, you know, people take small, poorly done studies and things and, you know, they, um, we do know that sexuality on the pill has you know has been quite well studied and we still don't really know how much it can affect libido or not it it seems to be both for people so some people might say it has a negative effect but other people say it's the opposite and people are very complex and so i think there needs to be obviously more research and but libido is highly complex and we do know that starting a relationship can also be a stressor. And that's the reason why a lot of people start the birth control pill. And so for example, you know, a lot of people associate the pill with weight gain. But they did a study where they compared what happened when people got a copper IUD versus the birth control pill. And the weight gain was the same. So that tells us that being in needing to start contraception is associated with a behavioral change in some way. So all of these things are difficult and it doesn't mean they're not worth studying and they need to be be um, sorted out. But um, but this idea that that the pill is this global harm, uh, we see pill panics kind of come up about every 10 years. And I think this is the first time they've really come up from TikTok. So um, and it's this kind of social media thing. So I would just say that step back, try to get some other information and, you know, and look at the source. Does the source recommend supplements? Is the source somebody who is associated with anti-vaxxers or associated with, you know, Christian Northrup in some way and ask yourself is, do I want to get information from someone associated with those people? And maybe you do. Um, but for me, I don't even listen to those people because I don't care what they say. I have to say,
0: um, I want to end where you sort of end the book and it is with abortions, actually. And we know that the climate currently in the United States, uh, is abysmal, uh, to say the least. And we know in Canada, we seem to sometimes have this, um, you know, high horse complex where we're like, well, it's, it's fine here and it's, we're fine and we're great and no one's touching abortions here. And yet it is, still extremely difficult for a lot of women to access care here. So what are some enduring myths or perhaps the top enduring myth about abortions that you want debunked once and for all?
1: Yeah, that um, that abortion has any negative health consequences. Um, the negative health consequences come from being denied an abortion, really. It's safer or as safe as having a colonoscopy. So Abortion's super safe um, and people should govern their bodies. And yeah, I mean, the law or the lack of law in Canada is is a very, is a should be an example worldwide um, that abortion should just be a medical procedure. But as you've said, access varies greatly in the country. Uh, and that's something that needs to be changed. Like, I don't understand why there couldn't be a national you know, medical abortion program. Like if you're, wherever you live, as long as you have access to a phone or a computer, you should be able to call a central number and get your medication abortion. That like, you should just be able to, and and that should be it. Um, and uh, and you should be able to go get it from whatever closest pharmacy is to you. Um, so So that's something that needs to fix. Also access to procedure abortions as well needs to be fixed. But I think I would like to leave Canadians that to not be complacent. People, nobody thought Roe was going to be overturned in the States. They didn't think it was going to happen. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody. I think there were many legal scholars who were incredibly worried. But when I say nobody, I mean like the general population, the, 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 the electorate um, was less concerned about it. And it's only now that it's abortions individually on ballots that people are actually coming out to vote for it. So don't wait until it's too late to vote for it. Put pressure on your politicians that it is, this is something that cannot be touched. This is, you know, this is a human right and uh, people deserve governance over their bodies. And uh, just be aware that um, the, you know, it's a, abortions become a very strong talking point for fascism in the States. And it's a way to mobilize a lot of people and just be very mindful of that, that, that we're all closer to the edge, perhaps, maybe, than we think.
0: Um, I We have covered so much ground here, and it's fascinating. It's, it was fascinating to read. It was fascinating to hear your take on it um, in in this format as well. I end every episode with asking my guests the same question, which is, what is your number one piece of advice on how to age
1: powerfully? So my number one piece of advice, I don't like the answer either. So I'm just going to put it out there is exercise. It really is. And I think that many women are behind the eight ball because many of us maybe did like cardio in our younger years, but that I wished I'd started lifting weights when I was in my twenties, that that really, um, one, it makes you feel powerful. You take up more space, you know, but I was in my twenties. Women didn't go to the gym. They went to aerobic studios, they did not go to the gym. And so it's it's so important for your health. And I always tell people like in menopause, if you could only do one thing, it would be exercise. Um, it touches every health domain, except hot flashes, like everything else. So you want your brain to age well, your bones, your muscles, your balance, everything. It's exercise and especially um, you know uh, resistance training. I love that
0: you left it on that note because I am personally really into strength training and exercise and the gift of being a farm kid and being born and raised on a farm was that it was built in and that's what my body learned to do and like and and I now continue. It was... The gift that I never thought that I would thank my father especially <laughs> for giving me, which is kid, go get that pitchfork, go pick up that wheelbarrow and muck out 30 stalls, will ya? I mean, who knew that I'd be like today at 46 going, you know, thanks?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, on a farm, like lifting bales of hay, moving all that, like that's you, you've you 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 are really putting in that resistance. I mean, but you know, you you see how that's why I went the big joke in medicine is is if the farmer comes to the emergency department, stop the presses there's something actually wrong, right? Like farmers, you know, my and the worst one is when he says, my wife made me come in. It's like, okay, like you know, there's a catastrophe happening. He's might cut something off where, you know, it's like, because <laughs> they're so tough. It's so true. You're speaking
0: of my father for sure. Um I just want to say thank you for all the work that you do day in and day out, especially thank you for the latest of of what I call the trilogy, the Jen Gunter trilogy, Blood. Uh, It is out now, The Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation. Thank you so much for joining me today and for being so generous with your time as well. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I want to remind everybody, Dr. Jen Gunter's book, Blood, The Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation is available now. I'm telling everybody... You run, don't walk to get it. While you're at it, her other two New York Times bestsellers, The Vagina Bible and The Menopause Manifesto, also must-reads. And as you say, Dr. Gunter, lying about the body is the hallmark of patriarchy. And the fix is robust education and breaking the curse with knowledge, which is exactly what you do every single day. So thank you again for all of your knowledge. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Well, you can follow Dr. Gunter on Instagram. If you're not already, it is at Dr. Jen Gunter. You can sign up for her newsletter, which I have a long time ago, called The Vagenda. And you can get the facts sent straight into your inbox. And while you're at it, give our show a follow and a like and a review. It's so, so helpful. You can follow me at Aging Powerfully with MG, at Melissa Grello and Aging Powerfully with MelissaGrello.com. Thank you again, Dr. Gunter, and for every single one of you for listening and tuning in to this latest episode of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grella.